We're going to be blessed. We have Dr. Dan, Jester, and Patty are visiting with us today. It's been about three years since they've been here the last time. Yeah, I think it's been three years. Could have been two years, but I think it's been three. But Dan and Patty are parents, are fathers and mothers in the Messianic Jewish movement. I think you got involved in the Messianic Jewish movement in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And God has anointed him. He's got apostolic, prophetic giftings, teaching giftings. He's, over the years, has helped us in our movement really develop a theology for today. And when Millie and I felt called of the Lord to lead a congregation, after picking ourselves up off the floor, we, we just sensed that we needed to be aligned with a movement, a network that we saw men and women of God who um, were committed covenantally to one another. And we've known the Justers for many years, and we got involved with Tikkun Ministries, which means restoration. Many years ago, even before we even started or Chaim, we started, just Millie and I. They believe in, in the restoration of all things. And, and they are, um, this, this movement, this network, Tikkun, that we're part of, and we felt like we needed that messianic umbrella covering to help us guide some really weird waters that are out there, you know. And we needed some solid, I'm a person who's like, I want solid theology. I want solid. I want people who love the Lord, who are passionate, and they are passionate about seeing Yeshua establish His King, and seeing the body of Messiah coming into unity, Jew and Gentile together. A restoration of the fivefold gifts. This is what Tikkun is all about, and and Dan and Patty have been um, have have parented that movement since the 70s and and 80s, and why don't you come on up here, and, and I'm just going to turn it over to these guys when I pray with them. Um, when I have a question about a scripture or an issue or, or something like that, these are the guys that, that I go to. I have my, my eldership, and I go to them, but, but sometimes there's things that are even beyond us, and these are people that I go to. They're my go-to people. And I've watched their lives for, I've known them for 15, 20 years, even when we were in Israel. We knew them. Yeah. And uh, we are just blessed by, by Dan and Patty. And I'm just going to basically turn it over to them. And um, so, Father, we just thank you for our time. And, Lord, what you want to do, Lord, you've already done much this morning. But, Lord, we just, um, I just pray for your mantle upon them, your anointing upon them. They share what you've put on their hearts to share. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Amen. I'll just let you guys, however you want to do this. Well, okay. I'm just going to go over the okay. product table. Dan, um, we brought um, several books. And since it is Shabbat, everybody has, um, not everyone. So because it is Shabbat and people have different convictions concerning whether to buy or sell on Shabbat, we've got three um, possibilities you could buy.
by the books. We unfortunately forgot our credit card square thing. So you could do either cash or check. Or you could go online when it's not Shabbat and order books. Or there's a third possibility is that you could pick up the book and leave a donation. <laughs> That's, you know, we have a basket out there. But, you know, as we're learning more and more, it's so important for us to be led by the Spirit. Whatever is uh, not of faith is sin. So if you're doing it in faith unto the glory of God, whether you buy it or don't buy it, you know, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. That's a liberty in the Lord when you're connected with him. Um, I just wanted to point out a, um, one of Dan's latest books, Social Justice. It's so important for today um, of all the stuff we're going through. And this is biblical justice, and it's so different than what people today think. People today think uh, more in a communistic equality fashion um, where there's no differences. And, um, but this is just an incredible book. And um, one of my favorite is the irrevocable calling, which gives God's plan and purpose, destiny for Jews and for Gentiles. It's incredible. And, um, and then I've got to mention my book, even though it's old. <laughs> but uh, the truths are still true, no matter how old. And it's the lessons I learned going through the loss of our son um, 23 years ago in, in the house fire. Yeah. Did you want to add more about books? Um, I think we have books tomorrow, too, for the church, don't we? So you can come tomorrow and we'll have the square, if we remember it. Sometimes we're forgetting. We've got to do better in remembering these things. And we're getting older, and you bring this stuff, and then you just forget it. So, uh, but yeah, we really think it's helpful to read the books, to get a sense of the spirit of things, and we have so many different topics that we address, not topics that are considered Messianic Jewish topics, but basically almost every topic is a Messianic Jewish topic because you're trying to see theology through a Jewish contextual lens from the time the Bible was written. So I have heaven, hell, and the afterlife, prosperity, what the Bible teaches, spiritual warfare. I mean, there are just so many things, mutual blessing, the plan of God. So if we have extra catalogs, or at least look at it and get familiar. Most everything is on Amazon. Not all is um, available from Kindle, a lot is. I was working with Barry, to, Barry um, Rubin, who's one of our publishers, uh, to do that, and then he had this terrible accident. He's recovering, but uh, uh, we're still trying to get everything on Kindle as well. So, and uh, on the Barnes and Noble one as well. So I guess that's all. Um, Patty's going to share. You know, I'm not myself today. I'm lightheaded, strange, and all of a sudden I realize, oh, I'm experiencing the Denver atmosphere. I am. And I haven't, I haven't, I am drinking. Maybe I need to drink something stronger. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't reject me because I gave that joke. 
But, uh, you know, I've been to Denver quite a few times and up in the mountains. And this is the first time this has ever affected me. Maybe because I'm getting older, I don't know. But in 1995 or 96, Ben was part of a wedding in Denver, and I was part of ministry, and we found that we were both going to be here, and we said, oh, let's go skiing together at Vail. So we did. Now, if you ski, you know, Vail is like unbelievable, right? Unbelievable skiing. So we went up to Vail. That's where we went to the springs uh, that, that first time and sat in that huge mineral pool that you mentioned today. And... Uh, <laughs> but it was like we were up there at 13,000 feet skiing from the top and people were sick and getting headaches and I was fine. It didn't bother me at all. But here I am with you and uh, so what can you do? It just happens. So I'll try to get through this and be clear-headed. Huh? Be clear-headed. Father, I just pray over this. You know, I, I, the altitude will do that. But Father, I pray that uh, your breath will flow through him. And Lord, I pray over his mind. Clarity, focus, the Shem Yeshua. Uh -huh. Great atmosphere for hitting home runs, I know that. <laughs> well, um, I should just say that things in Israel are going well. It's not where I want it to be. I want our network of, you know, if you want three prayer requests that I'm always praying for, is that number one, our network of congregations and all of the congregations that are connected to Tikkun in Israel would be strong. And uh, your leader who's coming in a couple of weeks, that congregation is connected, you know, with Mailsman. <laughs> but COVID has set us back on that. The second is that those that have our theology but are not in our network would form kind of a coalition and be together. Because the strength would be in the power of our being together in some kind of broad way because we, we, we come under a lot of attack for our convictions about Holy Spirit power, revival, unity, and these other networks agree with us on this and we would like to see us join. And then thirdly, that we would have a strong Bible college. We're working on that right away. Uh, that would reflect our values in cooperation with the other one that's already there, but they, left their original founding principles, which were very much like ours. Their leader, Ilan Zamir, was the co-chairman of Tor Jerusalem Council II. And the theology of Tor Jerusalem Council II is very similar to what we teach and believe. And so Ilan, when he was the chairman and the leader of the school, that was a wonderful period for us. And why the Lord uh, took him, we don't know, but that happened. You knew him, didn't you? Just a touch. He was quite something. He was amazing. So pray for us, just in case they need it. Just in case. I don't usually do it, but just in case. Patty's going to share today. I want to share a little bit of biography today for you. You know, I've come to understand at 73, almost 74 years old, young, healthy, spry. By the way, I had a little shock of realization you know, when they talk in the Bible about living to old age, do you know David and Solomon only lived to be about 70? Wow, and they were old? And he had to have a beautiful woman to keep him warm, but there was nothing to that. And I'm so glad I have a beautiful woman keeping me warm, too, at this age, but uh, a little different. But um, 
Love is a great thing, you know. I mean, just if you can be really excited and in love when you're our age, wow, it's just the greatest. But anyway, that's, some, that's another message for some other time. But that comes out of covenant. But anyway, I've, I came to understand that gains in your theological, biblical understanding are connected to interventions of the Holy Spirit. And you know, if you're not in a charismatic Pentecostal world, you think that you're coming to things on the basis of rational thinking. But God's Holy Spirit is involved in your thinking always when he's showing you biblical truth. You're not coming to just on the basis of your human ability. And, and now I look back on my life and I realize there were key times of intervention where God revealed himself and revealed the meaning of scripture to me. The first when I was 12 and a half and I heard God speaking that I should relate to him and I started to go to church. It was an intervention. It was quite amazing. And then I became very zealous. I was uh, immersed, baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 17 years old. And then I wanted to just live for the Lord and be a pastor. And then I got derailed in skepticism and depression when I was 19 that lasted for about three and a half years. And uh, two and a half of those years, I had this wonderful woman with me. And when I got over it, that's when we got married. I think you couldn't get married when I was still in the slow of despond, as Pilgrim's Progress says. But um, in that period of time at Wheaton College, um, I was beginning to struggle. But what I didn't struggle with faith, I didn't understand uh, a lot of different things, but I didn't understand that God was preparing me for Messianic Jewish ministry even back then. He prepared me because I had a Jewish father. And he prepared me because I had a Norwegian mother that came from a pro-Israel heritage going back to the 1840s. And I connected to the family over there in Norway. It's quite an amazing story. And we could be here forever if I told you all of the stories that I could tell you. But I'm at Wheaton College seeking the Lord, and I'm trying to figure out what I can believe. I'm studying religions. And now I begin to see the development of a Messianic Jewish orientation. In my senior year at Wheaton College, still skeptical, I took a course from a professor whose name was Dr. Samuel Schultz. It was called Old Testament Introduction. Now, you have to understand, Old Testament Introduction is not Old Testament Survey. He taught that, too. Introduction is a critical examination of the origins, the authorship, and all of the theories that reject the full inspiration and authority of the Old Testament. So it's for juniors and seniors only, this class, uh, not open to younger. And so I, I took this class because I wanted to find out if the Old Testament could be believed, if it was credible. And Schultz was a, an amazing man. He, um, he graduated from Harvard. There was a group of people that came out of Harvard and became leading uh, lights in evangelical theology in that age. He was one of them that I had. The other I had in seminary, Kenneth Conser, also very influential on me. But Schultz's class on Old Testament introduction was amazing because this, this is the beginning of my understanding Messianic Jewish theology. I, there wasn't anything. Messianic Judaism didn't exist in terms of the modern movement, which started in 1970. Uh, people, you know, there was beginnings, there were rumblings in the 60s, but the congregations that made it started in 1970. 
And so, um, and some of them still exist. Uh, two of them still exist. But anyway, um, Schultz wrote a book called The Gospel of Moses. And he also wrote a book called Deuteronomy, The Gospel of God's Love. And people were shocked that he had such a title because in the evangelical word, you talk about Moses being the law and not gospel. But Schultz came to believe it was gospel. And he taught us, you know, I was like 20 years old, 21 years old. He taught us that the Mosaic uh, scriptures, especially um, Exodus through Deuteronomy, are put in form of a covenant treaty where God declares that he rescued Israel through no good works of their own, that his salvation was totally by grace, and then on the basis of his grace and love, he expected a response of obedience, and then he brings them into the promised land. So they go from bondage to deliverance through the sea, as Paul says it's an anticipation of the gospel, and then they're led into the promised land, and God declares this is not on the basis of any of your righteousness or your good works, and that the law was given as a constitution so that Israel would have a civil and moral order that was great, but that it was not given ever as a means of gaining salvation by works. I had never been taught this before. Has anybody ever heard this before? I mean, I'm 21 years old and I'm listening in this class with this famous guy. And um, that, you know, and I can show you this in Deuteronomy, and that the pattern is God first saves us, offers us his grace, we say yes, we go through an exodus in his death and resurrection, then he says, to obey him. And Yeshua says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's the same thing. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in those who walk by the Spirit, Romans 8.4. So I came to a different understanding of the Mosaic law before I was even in Messianic Judaism. I'm still thinking I'm going to be a philosophy professor. And here are just a couple of verses on this. We read in, in Deuteronomy, I think I have them underlined enough to find them for you. He says, in verse 17, note that it's not by works of chapter 8. You might say in your heart, my power and my, uh, the might of my hand has made me this wealth. Rather, it is to remember Adonai your God, for it is he who gives you the power to make wealth in order to establish his covenant that he swore to your fathers uh, as of, uh, at, at this day. And then in um, chapter 10 he says, verse um, if I could see better here, 12. Now, so now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? To fear Adonai your God, to walk in his ways, and to love him and to serve him with your heart and with your soul. And then he says, he says, Behold, to Adonai belong the heavens and the highest heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Only on your fathers did he set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them from all the peoples on the earth. Circumcise your heart, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Then I want to read here. In verse 4 of chapter 9, 
Adonai, when Adonai your God has driven out the nations before you, do not say in your hearts it's because of my righteousness that Adonai has brought me in to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of this nations. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, for you are going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of those nations. Uh, and, and it's also to keep the word Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham. So you should understand, it's not because of your righteousness that Adonai your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Wow. We're not taught this. And then the whole sacrificial system is not about works, but it's because God knows that we're going to fall short, so we need a way of walking in forgiveness and blood covering for the fact that we're not going to walk in perfection, so that God never gave the law as a counsel of perfection so that the Jewish people would have to live a perfect life to be accepted by God. No, he gave the sacrificial system so that they would depend on his mercy and grace, not on their own works, but that by his grace they would be able as a nation to keep his commandments. And it's the same as the pattern as the new covenant. So anyway, Schultz was very strong about this, and this, this brought me to the second thing, is to understand the relationship of law and grace, and that is that we are saved totally by the grace of God, but when we're saved, he changes us within, and he puts a motive and ability of obedience within, so we keep the law of God through his grace. And I came to agree with the famous reformer, the second point, John Calvin, who said, do we cast away the law of Moses uh, because it's a, a law that leads to death. He said, perish this wicked thought from our minds. And he said that uh, the law is a discipling tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit to bring discipline. And then 2 Timothy 3 was quoted because it's of the law, because all scripture is given for training in righteousness. And Calvin said that means that the Torah of God is used in training people in righteousness. How could we have missed it so much in so much of the Christian world on this? Now, strangely enough, there were great Christians of yesteryear who understood this. Calvin understood it. Wesley understood it. Finney understood it. But we got away from it. So now I had this positive understanding of law and grace and an orientation toward the law before the Lord intervened and brought me back to faith in him in the spring of 1970. Now I come back to faith in him. We left a charismatic church that went heretical, and now Patty and I began a search concerning what is the nature of the church, still pre-Messianic Jewish. The first congregations were forming in Cincinnati, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia, but we didn't know anything about it. And we began to have this quest for the issue of what then is the church? What does God want of us? It was in the Vietnam War protest era, and how similar that day was to today, because we had the major movements on campus that are even stronger today that want to overthrow the American order of government. Do you understand that these are major movements? And uh, if you look at critical race theory, it's based on something called critical theory that was developed by a school in Frankfurt, Germany. That was the philosophy influencing the new left at that time. 
what goes around comes around. We're now dealing with the same critical theory from Germany, the same critical race theory that young people were reading Herbert Marcuse and Francis Schaeffer was preaching about this 50 years ago. It's here now, all over again. Same writers, same people being appealed to, but new people taking it on farther, but it's the same basic thing that we struggled with 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, who knows? There are hippies today, right? But we began to be discouraged about what we saw in the church. Because now Patty and I, I was up at uh, Trinity, and she was at Wheaton, an hour drive between them, and I'd come down every weekend to be with her, and we'd go looking for a church. And they, evangelical, the center of evangelicals, and they'd stand up, sing a hymn, walk, sit down, have an announcement, have another hymn, have a sermon, and go home. And I thought of that song, there must, you know, is that all there is? And we began to relate to people in the seminary that were with us wanting something more. And we began to look at this issue of the, I would call it the alienation of the people of our world who are determined by their economic drive to move wherever, to not stay put, to not build relationships that would last. I grew up in an extended family. Extended families were being destroyed because of economic motivation. People move on the basis of a nicer atmosphere. They move on the basis of the job, leaving all of their friends and relatives. And we began to believe that this cannot be right and that the Bible must provide something that is a bulwark against this alienated, empty, non-lasting relationship situation. So a few of us as students began to study the book of Acts, and this was the third great truth before Messianic Judaism, and Patty's going to speak some more about this uh, today, but we began to study the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 2 was burned into us in 1970-71, and it's been burned into us ever since, because we read this. This is the nature of the community they formed. And if you study the early church, even as it spread to the Mediterranean world in Ephesus, Corinth, Thessaloniki, uh, Rome, this is characteristic of them all. They were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were happening through the apostles. Now, I didn't get to this truth yet. That came later because I was very rational at that point, rationalistic. And all who believed were together and had everything in common. Now, I don't believe it meant they were communists. I believe they sold and helped one another. And you see this in Acts 5. They had the right to sell or not to sell. But there was this love where we provide for one another. And all who believed were together having everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as they had need. And day by day, they continued with one mind uh, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they were sharing meals with goodness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. I came to believe that we were to build something 50 plus years ago, that we were to build something called a covenant community that would disciple people 
and who would build relationships that would last a lifetime. And that they would stay put unless they had a definite call of the Holy Spirit and they would not move, they would not leave the community unless it was a call of the Holy Spirit and they would keep a commitment of seeking confirmation for that move if they moved away. But it was always the decision of the individual before the Holy Spirit. They weren't locked in, but it was an ideal. We want relationships that will last a lifetime. And we uh, called for people in our first congregation. It was so funny. We came into the Chicago congregation. Uh, it was the Jewish Christian congregation in the Presbyterian Church. In 1972, that's how we got into the movement, through our spiritual father at Wheaton, Evan Welsh. And we wanted a normal Presbyterian church, but this thing of community captured us, and we began to wonder, are we to establish this kind of covenant community in Chicago? And we began to teach on this. We began to teach on building your lives together, on mutual accountability, and 45 people moved to live in walking distance of each other so that they could build their lives together because we came to the conviction that you can't build your lives together very well if you're all spread out to no end. And it was wonderful. We believed that that kind of community would provide healing for people. We believed it would provide wholeness. We believed we would raise children together, that they would grow up together. And we had this amazing community from 1972 to 78. Actually, the community lasted after that. And we were thrilled. Now, when we came to Washington, the Lord called us out of that community, which was the most painful decision we ever had to make. We put it before the elders for confirmation. We are still very close friends with people from that community to this day. And we came to Washington, and we didn't want to go there. We were shown on a map by one of the leaders where the people lived, and they were spread out all over the metropolitan area. Very few people lived near each other at all, and very few people were building relational community. And when I came, building community became one of my first messages in 1978. And this man, Lee Cooperman, was already there. <laughs> huh? Yes. Three weeks before me, before I came. And you remember, Lee, that those were the messages back then. Do you remember that? Right. And we twisted your arm because you had this vision of a house somewhere out somewhere. And we convinced you to not do that, but to build your future in close proximity to the community we were building. Remember that? Yes, build him into the community. Don't let him go. We'll tie him up. But Lee, but Lee for years, was with us building that community, you know? And um, the thing is, it, it began to happen. Some of the old leaders could never. They were not communal. They couldn't get it. But we had new younger leaders that gave themselves to this, like Joe and Jerry Miller, who are still with us in Tikkun, uh, 
Andrew Shishkoff and Paul Wilbur and uh, Asher and Trader, and we became an eldership together, and I had this vision that, Lord, we want to build our lives together in covenant commitment relationally, beginning with the elders and then flowing down to the people, and our relationships will last a lifetime, a lifetime of commitment, love, and mutual submission. Not one guy being the dominant leader, although I was a pretty strong leader. I wanted my way, but I wanted my way with the agreement of others without forcing them. And, and uh, you know what? This is what Tikkun is about. We, as leaders, have walked together for over 40 years. 42, 43, 44 in a couple, 43 in a couple of cases. And so I'm going to come back to that uh, with Patty, who's going to share some more words about this. But I now really believe that we had some missing elements because I believe that building this kind of community is a key to evangelism because in the way people see you living in love with one another and supporting one another, and we have to call a group of young people to this because this was a message that young people were, old, uh, were looking for because they were looking for the authenticity of love, not that big mega church. doesn't matter how big or small you are, but what is the quality of community you're building? That was the issue for us. Now, I said to myself when I got called to the first Hebrew Christian church, maybe I'm going to just be here for a year and then I'm going to take a normal Presbyterian church because I was going for Presbyterian ordination. Now, I didn't know that I would stay in this congregation. At the time, just before I was called, I was given a book by my spiritual father, Evan Welsh, that became the fourth major thing before I became Messianic Jewish oriented. It was a book by George Ladd called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and Chaplain Welsh spoke to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, Dan, the, 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 the gospel that my father preached is coming back to the church, and he gave me this little book. And I read it, and all, everything made sense. I now understood. See, I was running from eschatology. You know, I came out of a background in high school. I was part of clubs and camps where I was taught that we were going to get raptured out seven years before Jesus returns, and I was all excited about that. I was ready to zoom out of here. No tribulation for me, right? But, you know, that... that that idea fell apart on the basis of seeing scripture in context. And uh, so um, I'm reading this as a skeptic, and then I came to understand that biblical, biblical teaching, the New Testament, is eschatology. It is about the last days. And that Jesus brought us a last days program over against the Pharisees who felt that the Messiah would come if they lived pure enough as Pharisees with all the rules and everything, but Yeshua brought the kingdom of God and the age to come broke into this age and the gospel that we preach is the gospel of the kingdom, contrary to some theologies out there that say, no, we don't preach that. That's what the Jews will preach after the church is gone. But that the gospel we preach is the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God has broken into this world, and that, if, and that God invites us to live in and from the kingdom of God. So when you understand that the kingdom of God is the invitation 
through Yeshua, then you understand you're inviting people into a way of life, and that fit my whole communal orientation. Now, I didn't yet discover the signs and wonders and Holy Spirit power issue, but that was number four. And only then did I come to number five. I'm giving you the eight biographical things that I received from the Lord in this 11-year period of my life, 12-year period of my life. The next one was, I had these elders. I inherited them in the first Hebrew Christian church who began to think that maybe we should live a Jewish life when we come to faith in Jesus. Now you would say to yourself, then what was the first Hebrew Christian church? Well, it was a halfway house of assimilation. It was to make it easier for Eastern European Jews to have a congregation so that they would feel at home culturally, so that, but, so that eventually their children and others could go on to normal churches. We didn't celebrate the feast. We didn't keep Sabbath because that was part of the old law, and we're no longer under the law. We're now uh, a Jewish Christian congregation, meaning that we generally are like other Christian churches. We didn't do Jewish liturgy. We didn't keep the Sabbath. Like I said, we didn't celebrate the feast. We had some pictures about these things on the wall. So these elders said, you know, we want you to think about this. So I said, well, look, you know, for me, I have to study. So I went to all the libraries in Chicago that had theological books, and I began to study the issue in scholarship. They call it early Jewish Christianity. And as I studied this, along with, you know, studied the early Messianic Jewish movement in the second to the fourth century, there's a whole literature on this very big-time discipline in, in scholarship today, still continues, started about 110 years ago. And I came to this stunning conclusion by studying scripture with this question that it is God's intent that Jews who come to faith in Jesus continue to identify and live as Jews, that they don't leave their people. But the Gentiles are not called and responsible to live a Jewish life, but those who are called especially can come alongside and be with them and support them because some Gentiles are called to join the Messianic Jewish world, but it's not a general call for Gentiles. They don't have to circumcise. They don't circumcise their sons. They don't have to keep all the patterns of Jewish life. So I came to this conclusion that it was the apostolic intent that Jews continue to identify and live as Jews. And I was amazed to discover back then, now I'm really old, by the way, by this time I'm really an old guy, 25 years old. Yeah, I'm getting older, right? No children yet, we didn't have children yet. Yeah, yeah, so, here, here I was in Romans chapter 11, and I read this text, verse 16, if the first fruits is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And Paul is talking about Israel is still elect even though they've rejected Yeshua. They're still God's chosen people, and they will fulfill their destiny, and all of Israel will be saved. 
but the proof is that you have in the midst of the Jewish people a group of people that are called in Romans 11.5 the saved remnant and that we identify as a saved remnant of Israel, not people that have left Israel, and we identify as the first fruits which is indicating that there will be a harvest to come. That the full harvest of the Jewish people is indicated and proven and foreshadowed by our presence as Jewish living Jewish believers. Wow, what a discovery. And I understood that this way of life was rooted in the Torah. So I got up, came to this conclusion in 1973, and then in 1974, early winter, I got up and I gave two messages at, Adata, at First Hebrew Christian Church, and I said, we've been wrong. And I explained where we were wrong. We've been a halfway house of assimilation, and that we were called to live a Jewish life. And I had the support of the elders, amazingly. And 40% of the congregation left us. This is not what they signed up for. They didn't want to be Jewish. Huh? Only 40. 60 stayed. But we weren't that big, you know. So we were a little group, you know. And um, we changed our name to Adat HaTikvah from First Hebrew Christian Church, changed our services to Shabbat, incorporated the celebration of the feasts. And that was all wonderful. And we began to grow. And we became very successful. We saw a lot of Jewish people accept the Lord in Chicago, and we thought this was going to be lifetime. But then you know what we discovered? We discovered, oh, by the way, the other thing, the other thing I came to conviction about, you know, building community, that churches were not to be independent, but they were to be connected in an association of mutual accountability. That it wasn't safe for independent churches because there was no appeal when things go off. And there needed to be equipping and association. That was why it became a Presbyterian, but I'm not going to get into that one. Now, I'm in this congregation, and we're in the city, and we have people that are all sorts of confused, damaged, wounded, schizophrenic, literally, psychotic. And some of them Jewish. And I'm counseling these people, telling them rationally what they need to do. And some of them are on drugs with their psychiatrists. Do you know what I discovered? That I couldn't get these people healed without the power of God. I thought I could counsel them with scripture and mm -mm. I discovered, long story, casting out demons. I discovered inner healing before the books were written. And we saw dramatic transformations of people. And I came to understand that the gospel of the kingdom was a gospel of signs and wonders, and that when I prayed in tongues over people, God would give me revelation of what the need was and how to pray for their healing and deliverance. So now I became a Presbyterian Messianic Jewish charismatic. <laughs> That's right. So we embraced charismatic power and healing. And then one day, 
I was just minding my own business with God and having quiet time in 1980. I had heard something about the restoration of the church. It was vague. I didn't know what to make of it. And I was having my devotions. And the Lord came upon me. It was the largest visitation I had since I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and the largest I've had since. And I've had visitations since. But this was the big visitation. And he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And he showed me all the people that he had put in my life since my father died when I was nine years old and how he had brought men into my life himself that he had become a father to me and I'm crying. And then he said, I've more called you to Jewish ministry because of your Norwegian ancestry than Jewish. Because you know what, my Jewish uh, relatives were reformed Jews, they weren't believers in much of anything. But my Norwegian relatives were committed to Israel, they were committed to the Jewish people, they were committed to the gospel. And there's something about the blessing coming down, and I'm crying. And then God said, and I will restore my church. And he, he took me to John chapter 17 about the unity of the church, and that Yeshua prayed that they might be one that the world might believe, and that prayer has to be fulfilled before he returns, or it's moot. Because he says, if we would become one, then the world will believe. And then in Ephesians, he said, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints until we all come to unity. This will continue until we all come to unity. It's not something that was just for the first century. So there are people that lead networks. There are apostles and prophets today and evangelists, and they are to equip. And God spoke to me and said, I will raise up mighty apostles and prophets in the last days that will lead my church into unity, and they will be able to provoke Israel to jealousy. And he would pour out his spirit on revival that Acts chapter 2 was just the first installment, and that we would see revival and unity and fivefold ministry. So after I received that, I came back to the elders. Lee wasn't an elder yet. I came back to the elders, and I shared this revelation, and Asher and Trader said, yes! He was the first one on board with it. And then we joined a network of churches that believed in restoration. Until Asher said in 1984, I don't believe we're supposed to be joining a restoration network. I believe we're supposed to be one. 1984. Just about everything that you know of in Tikkun came out of those years of God's intervention in my life from 1970, 1969 to 1981. The basic theology was there, and I've been submitted to it and committed to this for the last 40 years. This is what we're about. This is what we're attacked for. We're attacked for this theology. But I know it's solidly biblical. Now, I want to just mention them again, and then I want Patty to come and share some more about this issue of healing community, because we are learning some things now in our later years of what makes this community 
more effective and the kind of communities that we want to build because I really want to see you succeed and attract a, a new generation of young people and to build this kind of community that will last into the future. So I'm going to share them again, the basic things. Number one, that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace, not law. Number two, that the relationship of grace and law is that God saves us by grace, but then we have obedience. Number three, we're to build Acts 242 community as the nature of the kind of things we build, not just going to meeting. That the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That we are to be a connectional congregation in an association of mutual accountability with others. Number six, now we're getting to 1972. All of that was before 72. Jews who come to faith in Jesus are called to continue to identify and live as Jews. Number seven, we are to embrace charismatic power. And number eight, we must embrace the restoration of the body of believers. Both the Jewish messianic part needs to be restorationist and the church, and they need to join together in this restoration. Amen? Amen. Okay, Patty, hon? My better half. I will take this away. That you get this beautiful. Well, um, the Lord is um, still building a message in me. Um, that's what you, you know. My preparation of speaking is a lifetime of growing in the Lord. So. Um, I don't have a lot of notes. I'm up here in weakness because I love the sense of the Holy Spirit. You know, if he doesn't show up, I might as well just sit down. But what's on my heart is preparing all of us to um, live in today's world and the days ahead, preparing us for the battles, being in the battle and to find strength. You know, there's um, something the Lord is bringing me through is um, to learn to rejoice in my weaknesses because in my weaknesses, he shows himself strong. And for the last several years, you know, I wonder why am I having this chair? I had um, back surgery, why I had, um, that was in 2015, where I had rods and screws and um, put in my back, and then I had heart surgery in 2017, a valve replacement, and during all this time, I kept up traveling, and um, there was a suffering, it is a suffering involved, but I praise God because in that weakness where I feel like I can't go on, he comes through, gives me strength. And on top of that, he gives me joy. And he does that exchange thing that I don't quite, I can't figure out. How can he turn my mourning into dancing? How can he turn my weakness into strength? It's a mystery. But when he does that, and that you live on the basis of daily supernatural impartation and strength to go on. There's a joy when there's that connectedness 
with the Lord. And, um, and the reason why I, Dan and I go from congregation to congregation across the states, traveling the world, is for the joy set before us, which is relationships. And God is knitting hearts together. And, you know, recently Dan and I and others in the Tikkun Network have read a book called The Other Half of the Church. And it's really given language to what has been Dan's and our vision for years. And it said that, um, that joy, real joy, not happiness, I'm talking about joy that's not dependent on circumstances, comes as a result of relationships, relationship with God and with one another. And it is coming to the realization that when Scripture prays, you know, when the, the was given to pray this and bless over the people, Israelites, is that may his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. It's the Lord being glad He's smiling. He's glad to see you. He's glad to be with you. When you understand that we are serving a God who loves us, who's glad to be with us, who's glad to spend time with us. And see, so many of us have come through things where we blame God, we shake our fists. There's, a, there's an offense that we have against God. How could God? Sometimes something bad happens. We lose our son. You know, there's... there's um, illness, there's other things, and we want so quick to raise our fists and say, God, how could you allow this to happen? How can a good God allow bad things to happen? And this process of coming into this relationship with God of trust and abandonment and surrender to him because we believe in him comes when we understand that he is good all the time. And that his loving kindness endures forever. And the first step of building healthy relationships is being reconciled with God. I had to work through a reconciliation with God after we lost our son in the house fire. And it, it, it come to the place of peace of knowing I will never in this life understand I'll never have, you know, perhaps a, a reason. People always tried to give me reasons why he died, but they were not helpful. And to come to a point of worship and love of God, even in the midst of mystery. Yes, I believe in healing. Yes, I believe in God's protection. I can give you story after story after story how he's protected me. But why is he, does he protect in some instances, allow other times where accidents and other things and tragedies to happen. I don't know. But all I know is that God loves me and he's good and his goodness prevails and his victory prevails. So when we come to understand, and then the biggest thing in understanding God's love is Yeshua's death and resurrection. Um... You know, so many times, you know, when Dan and I were first married, we were immature in our love. And we were insecure. And we would go through the first several years of our married life wanting proof that the other person loved us. If you loved me, you would do the dishes. 
If you loved me, you would change half the diapers. If you loved me, you would watch the kids so that I can take a nap. You know, it's always this conditionality, if you love me. But guess what? We do this with God. We want him to prove that he loves us. If you loved me, you would get me a spouse. If you loved me, you would give me children. If you loved me, you would give me a platform so I can preach or whatever, prophesy or have a ministry. If you loved me, if you loved me, if you loved me. But God brought me to the place of humbling that God needs no he, there's no expectation of him proving his love. He's already done it all. He sent his son to die for us. He's proven his great love. No greater love than a friend laid down his life for the other. And so this whole thing about being reconciled with him so we can become gold boldly before his throne of grace and mercy to obtain grace in time of need. And that's what I've learned to do during these seasons of weakness to come before him and say, Lord, I need grace. And he gives it to me. He is faithful. He is faithful. And, and so what I've learned is um, what this entails. You know, I love to talk about hugging. Um, you must be a good hugger, right? Oh, come on up here. <laughs> I can already feel, sense your spirit. <laughs> Notice what's taking place here. There's a transference taking place that is very, very deep. And my walls are down, her walls are down, and we can receive. Ooh, I love it. I can just stand up here and hug. <laughs> and I did a study about hugging in online, um, and it said that hugging in trusted relationships releases oxytocin, not oxycotin, oxytocin, <laughs> which is called a trust hormone. And it releases joy, it releases healing, it releases strength, all these things. And so I realized I can hug God because he created us in his image. So he wants to hug me and he be him and release in, in that trust hormone, oxytocin. And it brought strength to me to overcome, to go through difficult times. And then, so that's number one for gaining strength in the days we are living in. And the other part is with one another. Building those relationships of trust we need one another. As you saw that when I hugged her, something was being transferred. You know, if you want to study quantum physics, there's just such a whole depth of understanding is that why when we lose a loved one that it's a ripping and a tearing? Because as soon as we get to meet one another and talk with one another, in just enough time, there's bonds that form. And when you lose a child or lose a spouse, which are your closest, some of your closest relationships, there's a ripping and a tearing because they are inside of you and you are inside of them. There's part of them in you and you in them. And God has made it so that we can make these bonds of trust, of love and relationship. So in the body of believers, when we 
love God together and love one another, there's strength that is imparted. He says, encourage each other daily. Encourage each other. Strengthen each other. Why? Because the days are evil. We need one another. You know, when I had this last heart surgery, I learned so much because, um, number one, um, I had to spend two days alone in the ICU. You know, they, they were just allowed in for certain visiting hours. And I'm telling you, with all the drugs and the pain and things happening, they don't understand. It was a horror, horrifying, terrifying experience being alone in that ICU. And when Dan was with me, and he would start looking at his phone and doing his emails and looking at the news, I yelled at him, Dan, I need your active presence. Because when he was doing his phone, he wasn't imparting anything to me. So he put it down, and just having that, we didn't need to talk. He just had to be there, hold my hand, and be that active presence of something flowing back and forth. Because he was adding strength to me. Do you understand? Have you experienced that? Do you understand that? That's why it's so important to be intentional about our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, where we put away the phones and other things. Try to be that active presence. We need that spiritual nutrients that come from one another to supply that which is lacking. Are you with me here? Okay. And so God is developing this in, in, uh, because we need, we're not ready to face the last days as a, as a body of belief. We're not prepared. You know, we're talking about, the. you know, it's interesting when Dan was talking about the wave in the 60s of the rebellion and what was going on and the movements, and then today has become worse. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, hey, there's parallels. You know, when you think of Azusa Street, when you think of things with Toronto and Pensacola, there's waves of the glory of God being released on earth. Well, guess what? We are being prepared for another wave of glory. Why? Is because there's evil that has increased. And God is merciful. He won't leave us. He hasn't left his, us here as orphans or ill-equipped or powerless. He has given us of his spirit. And it says that all creation is groaning, waiting for the manifest sons of God. I know that there's bad teaching about that, from wrong teaching, getting to heresy. But I'm saying that there is going to be a glory manifested through his people on earth. Just study it in Scripture. If you don't believe it, study it. You know, when it talks about the glory of God filling the earth, that the waters covered the beds of the sea, God has ordained that his glory, his fullness is to come through us as a body of believers. It says that in Ephesians. His Fullness coming through his united body. This is what God is preparing. Rise, shine for your light. His light has come. His glory comes upon you. Isaiah 40 is that, you know, God raising up the valleys, bringing down the mountains, and being the, you know, the, the John the Baptist preparing the way so all men may see the glory. We are going to be like, Light beams from heaven, showing forth the glory of God, healing the sick. First of all, loving one another. That's going to be a real miracle. 
you know, Stan and I staying together. If we were go over the stages of our marriage, it's a miracle we stayed together. It's the faithfulness of God. Even in Tikkun, it's not because of our own righteousness or our own strengths or our own cleverness that has kept us together. It's been the mercy and the grace of God to keep us in there. He is faithful because he is restoring. Um, it's like with Israel um, when it says uh, that God has made a covenant with day and night and with Israel, as long as God is a covenant with day and night, the sun, the moon, the stars, that my love will never be removed from you. And so it, we at Tikkun are called to represent this revelation, this portion of God's heart, which is covenant love. And it is his keeping power that has kept us together, even when times when Asher and Aetan and us wanted to just flee because it's painful to iron sharpening iron to work through relationships. But the main thing I want to talk about for um, giving us strength and power and revelation is taking the Lord's Supper. I'm learning more and more about this and studying about the power of the blood, um, the strength that comes through the communion. I know there's been so many teachings and beliefs through the years from the Catholic Church that says that the blood, the um, wine and the bread literally become the blood and bread of Yeshua. But I don't believe that. But I neither I believe on the other side of the pendulum that it's just a ritual, a sign. I believe that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that something is released in the spirit that we um, that there's power in that. And I will go through just a couple minutes about the different elements. But Yeshua was so zealous for this, of what is released in the spirit. He said that um, you will have no life in you if you do, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You know, when one of our grandchildren was three years old, um, you know, because we travel in Israel and come here, and when I see her, I'm so glad, I'm so glad to see her. I said, I love you so much, I could eat you up. And she had a look of horror on her face, she, and she said, Nana, we don't eat people, we eat food. <laughs> so I had to share with her is that what I was talking about was the intimacy. And this is what Yeshua is talking about, is intimacy. I love you so much, I want to be on the inside of you, and you to be on the inside of me. And this is the intimacy of abiding in him that's going to empower us in these last days and release a fruitfulness in us. As Dan was reading from the um, book of Acts, this has just been on my heart, how daily... The believers met, met together daily. And I want to put this before you because, you know, again, there's just so many different views. And you have to discern in the spirit when things are not, you know, certain theologies are not critical, like death and resurrection. That's critical. You don't vary on that. You stick with that. And um, there's other um, theology, there's other doctrines that you hold on to that you don't deviate from. But this one I'm growing in is that what does it mean when um, the, I said about disciples that daily they broke bread together? You tie that in when Yeshua gave the command, you know, 
he broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to the disciples before he died. And he said, this do in remembrance of me. And then um, you read about how the disciples on the road to Emmaus and Yeshua, after the resurrection, was walking with them. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him until they were around a campfire and he broke bread and blessed it. Were these passages, in other words, referring to that um, uh, that um, sacrament or whatever that Yeshua was instituting before he died. Take this bread, take this blood. Because there's something about doing that that opens up our eyes to see him in revelation, breaking that bread, blessing it. We begin to see him. And the same thing, we're partaking of his blood. And and we need, as, as Apostle Paul prayed, the eyes of our heart open up so that we can see the glories of the riches in one another and in us. And we know that, come to realize that awesome power that dwells within us, the power of his spirit that raised Yeshua from the dead. You know, I've had this image of being like Rocky in that first movie, being punched and punched and punched and punched. And sometimes it feels like that. You just keep getting punched and punched. But finally, he got up. And he dun 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 you know. <laughs> well, the body of believers have been punched and punched and punched and punched. And there's going to be that song that will rise and will rise to our feet as a mighty army. We will know that awesome power that dwells within us. And we're going to know the tools. One of the, no the tools is this thing of of communion there's just so much and i believe that today as we partake of this he's going to give us a deeper revelation of his suffering on the cross because you know something we've we will not be able to be built into, into unity until we realize that my sin alone put yeshua on the cross he bore my sin that he or she who has been forgiven much loves much until there's that breaking inside of you and you realize that i've been forgiven Millions of dollars, you know, instead of looking at others, oh, they owe me millions of dollars, you know. No, when you've forgiven much, you love much, like the woman who wept over Yeshua's feet. And so in Zechariah, we are longing for that time when the spirit of grace and supplication is poured out. And we will look upon him whom we have pierced. And we will grieve and mourn bitterly as one grieves over their only son. There is a grief when we understand the pain that we have caused the father heart of God. If you've had a prodigal, you understand the pain of that child leaving the faith, of going and doing his own way and rebelling and going to all sorts of things that we know is hurting them. But thanks be to God. He has provided us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. And this is some of it. Um, so in preparation for the return of the Lord, there are John the Baptist going out with a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John the Baptist came to the Jewish people, the believers of the day, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they were baptized. So think of Zechariah. The spirit of, the, of cleansing came. 
There's been so many judgments in the body of believers, especially this last couple of years in the internet. I mean, everything. If you believe in vaccine, not vaccine. If you believe in mass, not mass. If you believe in Trump, not Trump. Biden, not this. I mean, it's just like everybody was at war. There was divisions in bodies of believers because of differing opinions. Unless we get the heart right and, and have that relationally right with God, first of all, being reconciled to him and, and submitted and trust him and trust his word, that his word never fails, Amen. then we build and have trust this way in relationship. And God is opening up the eyes of our heart to see the treasure of Yeshua in each one. We need one another. We need the portion that you have. I need the portion that you have and you have because together we have fullness, not by ourselves. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He says, I've given them the glory that they may be one. I've given them the glory that they may have one, be one. And so this is a time for the body to be unified like never before. And God is bringing us into deeper revelation about what the Lord's Supper means. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we need that. God can, can turn our mourning into dance, or we can be crying and grieving with those who grieve. But then God does this thing where he causes joy, supernatural joy, because joy is the anesthesia to go through the suffering, to go through the persecution that's coming. We need to learn these truths to be strengthened and ready for battle. Um, do you mind if, um, I mean, if you all came forward so that we can look into each other's eyes a little bit better and, and discern the body? The beauty of the Lord. The bride is making herself beautiful. Do you mind coming forward if you... Yeah. You can take that, right. <laughs>